You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com. I am your host, Troy Goodfellow, and with me today is freelance writer Rob Zachney. Hello. And freelance writer Julian Murdoch. And unlike Darwinians, I have no soul. <laughs> yes, this week uh, we're going to be talking about introversion, uh, the introversion aesthetic, the introversion ethos, and introversion as a strategy game developer. Uh both because of their announcement of their uh, heist, burglary, sabotage, spy, sabotage whatever game called Subversion, uh, and the release of Darwinia Plus on uh, the Xbox, uh, which has consumed uh, quite a few hours. In fact, just a couple of the maps have consumed quite a few hours. It's a very hard game. Uh, so this week, it is all introversion. One of our favorite independent developers, one of the most um, popular independent developers, especially over on Rock, Paper, Shotgun, one of our, I'm not going to say partner sites, since no official connection, but I love those guys. So, hi, Rock, Paper, Shotgun. Uh, so, introversion. Uh, so, Julian, you're a big DEF CON guy. I, I'm I'm actually a big introversion fanboy, I think you okay. could say. Uh although a lot of that fanboyism is really reserved for uh for DEFCON itself, which was just I, I DEFCON and Uplink too, I think, are phenomenally underrated games. Both of which that I, I've played countless hours of. Less Uplink. Uplink's kind of a one hit wonder, but mm-hmm. but DEFCON I really think is one of those perfect little gems of a game that everything that it tries to do it does very very well it's not big it's not complex uh but boy when you get three or four people together you start getting alliances going it it, it captures that feeling of playing risk when you're 12 years old and wanting to reach across the table and punch somebody in the face (laughs) and to me that's always the sign of a great game so yeah i am i'm a i'm a big introversion fanboy i'll admit it so what do you think is introversions uh appeal for you i mean they've had a they've done what three games four games well, it sort of depends how you count. I mean, right. really, I, I sort of consider like Darwinia and then they, they've sort of bastardized and mutated that a couple times, right? Yep. They, they came out with the multiplayer version, which I'm not a huge fan of because. Which we'll get into in a bit. Which we'll get into in a bit. Um, and they've done Darwinia a couple times along the way, yep. little mods here and changes there. Um, and then they did Uplink, uh, which was. Which sort I of never a, played. I did not play Uplink. Uh, Uplink was a, a really interesting little single player game where you're trying to sort of, you know, hack your way around the global network. I can't even remember the plot, but there is a basic plot of you're trying to like track down bad guys or something like that. But it had some really interesting sort of puzzle mechanics in it. But, and, and then they had DEFCON. Those are sort of been their, their three big games. Um, and then their new one coming out called Subversion, all of which really do share as much as anything, I think, a simplicity of design, both visually and, and sort of from an interface perspective and from a gameplay perspective. They really are sort of boiled down to the core video games. Um, and I, I really appreciate that. I like things that have been boiled down to their sort of root essence. I would argue that I mean, one reason people like you and me love these games is because we're children of the 80s, and these speak a lot to the arcade look. Oh, sure. I mean, they're Tron, Well, the right? Tron, I mean, war, game, war Games aesthetic, I mean, absolutely into those touchdowns. A- absolutely. And, and you know, I mean, Chris DeLay, the sort of lead designer there, I think has that sort of mentality, too. I mean, he, he just is sort of not interested in making games that look and feel like games other people are playing. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the development cycle for Subversion has been fascinating to watch because it sort of evolved from these screenshots that he showed, and I think he showed some stuff at E3 two years ago, and nobody's really been able to figure out what the game was. Right. And I interviewed him I interviewed him for the Gamers with Jobs conference call like a month or two ago. There'll be a link to that was, at the bottom of the podcast. It, <laughs> and even he was sort of admitting, it's like, yeah, until we sort of like, got the city builder done and a couple of these other things, we weren't quite sure what the game was going to be, right? <laughs> so he's like, he's just sort of making systems and stuff that looks really cool and then seeing what games come out of them. And there's a real purity to that design philosophy that is, that is, I think, very retro in a sense. It is very 80s. I mean, that's kind of a classic making a board game 
system idea, right? You, you, you come up with a system, you play around with a little bit and you see what kind of game evolves and, and their games do definitely feel that way. Uh, so Rob, uh, you're not as deep into introversion as Jillian or I, right? But you do have some experience. Yeah, I've, I've dabbled with other games except Uplink that flew completely below my radar. Um, but haven't, you know, had that much time with any of them. Um, and I'm, you know, I haven't played them in a, a little over a year. Now, you're a child of the 90s. Um, yes, I am, but I, but I remember Reagan. Uh, and <laughs> I remember Reagan dying. <laughs> Come on. No, I remember his last day of the Union. It's a very vivid memory. But no, I mean, like, growing up in my parents' house, I mean, you know, on our VCR, all we had were these 80s movies, right? So I grew up watching, um, you know, War Games and China Syndrome, and basically, even though the Soviet Union was gone, I was convinced that we were all going to die in a nuclear apocalypse at any moment. Um, so DEFCON really spoke to my childhood nightmares as well as anyone's. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think they're... I, it, to me, Introversion is one of those companies that probably shouldn't exist. I mean, there's no reason <laughs> that this company, I mean, they shouldn't survive, right? They make yeah. these, these well, narrow I mean, little games. They're peace. They until now have been PC centric. Um, you know, they are, I, I can't remember who was, it was that wrote the article. It might have been Edge. It might have been Rock, Paper, Scissors. They called them, you know, the last of the bedroom programmers. I mean, they really have that feel to them of just a bunch of guys working in a garage. Literally, uh, making games and, and they, they sort of feel a little bit like, uh, ironclad in that sense that it's just a couple of guys sitting in a room making games. And, uh, you know, by all, by all, I think by all common sense, they should just be extinct. <laughs> I'm really glad they're not. Yeah. Well, I do want to talk a bit about their business plan because it hasn't exactly gone smoothly, uh, for introversion. They're a right. company that is having a lot of trouble, so I want to talk a bit about that uh, towards the end. But I do want to focus on the game, since this is a, really a game show. Uh, well, not a, a game show. There aren't going to be any prizes. Well, there are going to be prizes at the end. Uh, I want to start with Darwinia, which is their first game, which was their first, well, I guess you could say, big critical success. Um, that really got them, I mean, Uplink was before Darwinia, right? Uh, no. Well, I, I'm not actually sure. I mean... Uh, yeah, the history was 2005. Okay. Uh, and actually, you're right. 2001 was Uplink. Right. There you go. You now, Darwinia was where I first heard of them. Right. And, and actually, me and myself as well. I played Uplink when it came out on uh, on GameTap. That's when I first oh, played Uplink. Okay. Um, so you know, and it was basically free because I was paying my 50 bucks a year or whatever it was. Um, but yeah, Darwinia is definitely when they showed up on the map because that was a pretty aggressive. Uh, entry into the real-time strategy genre. Right. Although, uh, let's talk. Let's dig into it a little bit. I mean, yep. it is pretty much unique. I can't think of another game that that kind of does what it does. How so? Um. Well, I, just the, the there are all sorts of things about it that feel different than other RTSs. And I'm sure if I if I tried to map it out, maybe I could find it everywhere else. But but like the just like the movement system, like mm-hmm. you tend to be con- confined into these little islands and then have these repositionable dishes to link you from one place to the next. Um, I mean, that just doesn't feel like any other games I can think of. I'm sure that somebody could point out to me that from a gameplay mechanics, it's the same as opening up a railway line or something like that. Right. Um, but but it definitely does feel different. It gives you this opportunity to sort of build up and turtle a little bit mm-hmm. uh, in one area, really sort of lock down a, a zone and then move on to the next one in a fairly deliberate way. Although there isn't the sort of building endless units quality that there are in a lot of RTSs. I mean, most of the time you're limited to four or five, six units yeah. on the board at any given time. Yeah, and that's really one of the central parts of the design is that you are, the unit cap is so small. Um, I, mean, I, wrote, I talked to, um, I talk, interviewed the people at Ensemble for Age of Empires and talking about how, you know, a 50 unit cap, that should be enough for anybody. Well, I mean, try dealing with five. Right. Uh, I mean, right. Yeah, you'll have a squad of five people within that five, but it's still, you know, one unit. Taking, you could have two engineers of your five who can't fight at all, and they're right. just running around picking stuff up. So you might have just well, quite, quite often that's quite often that's the optimal strategy, right? Yeah. Is that you is that you really only have one, maybe two combat units yeah. on the board at a time? Yeah, and so it's really a game about uh, 
making use of your scarce resources, uh, making sure you can replace them if they get killed without getting overrun by the bad guys uh, quickly. Uh, that's through controlling territory and other zones. Um, but it is a game that is really about husbanding very few resources, and I think that's kind of unique. It's just how small it is. I mean, the maps are huge. Uh, it can take forever to complete one of those maps, because these aren't small maps, even though you have very few units. Uh, and I think the challenge is part of the only, one of the few games we have where the space so dwarfs uh, the options available to you. I, I would actually say that one of the flaws of the game could be considered the fact that that there are there are points in the maps, certainly I think sort of like four or five, six maps in into the single player campaign where you really feel like, OK, go all the way to the left and capture point A. Now haul ass all the way back over to the other side of the map and capture point B. And in the middle, there is nothing except bad pathing. I mean, to me, that can be a, a somewhat frustrating component to that is that is that oftentimes and and I, I haven't played enough of Darwinia Plus to know whether they fixed much of this, but no. but the pathing can be pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can you can say, OK, I've got a squad here. I don't really want to drive it by hand all the way across the map. I'm going to go click on the other side of the map. It should be able to figure out how to go through friendly territory and get over there. And it doesn't. Right? Oh, right. It it's, stuck it's halfway in the middle or, or it drives itself off into the lake. And, you know, you just use it that way. It walks across enemy territory and dies. Um, or it gets stuck in the mountains. That's my favorite yeah. one, too. Is you, have, you have a squad of five units. You're crossing a mountain, and one unit gets stuck in a volcano, basically. I know, a caldera. And so the whole unit stops. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, I mean, Darwinia is actually not a game I, I particularly um, ever managed to get into for some of those very reasons. Um is that it? It was so slow paced, and I did find there there were all these frustrations um, that could really just make playing it feel like a bit of a chore at times. Um, where you know, the, when I get to the place where there was some you know action that could happen, you know, then the game was interesting. But then it was time for another long hike around the level, and I also found it. You know, because you're husbanding these scarce resources, it was depressingly easy for me um, to find myself walking into a fail state, basically, um, over and over again. So, I mean, there were, there were a lot of things in that game that just, it just it just punished inattention and impatience, and it also created a lot of incentives to get impatient. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I think that's probably fair. I mean, one thing that I, I, I am looking forward to is that, uh, you know, I, I played a little bit of multi-winia, mostly in sort of closed environments, you know, playing against the devs when it was first released and things like that. Um, and, and I could definitely see the allure of it. I mean, it felt a little bit like playing, uh, two-player populace, where it's sort of like, you know, rush to central points, uh, you know, really easily, uh, graspable situations because you are only dealing with a few units. It's a little bit like Dawn of War 2 in that mm -hmm. sense where you're you're really dealing with fairly confined spaces with the multiplayer maps. Um, you're not doing giant resource builds. There's not, you know, resources in this are, are minimal. I mean, yeah. you're not you're not farming in any real sense. Um, and so I could see the allure of the multiplayer, but honestly, when Multiwinia launched on the PC, it was like a ghost town. I never found anybody to play with. So I'm hoping that maybe there are more people out there available on Xbox Live. Well, that's something I never really understood because I, I had the same experience. Like, I, I got Multiwinia because I really liked the demo, but I never really found anybody who um, wanted to play it. And I couldn't really convince my other friends to go in on it with me, even though they'd all been there for DEFCON. Uh, so that was a little depressing. But I didn't get why Multiwinia didn't catch on, because I, f I really thought that there was a lot there to like, right? And my problem with Darwinia is that it could be really slow-paced and a little frustrating to get to where the action was. I really appreciated Multiwinia that, you know, the, a scrum would develop almost immediately after the uh, level began. You only had, mm -hmm. you know, a few seconds to really come up with a quick strategy in your head. And then you'd have to start brawling with the other players. And I, I really enjoyed the, that dynamic. Um, and I, I just, I never understood why other people didn't. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I do think that the, as much as I love the, the sort of absolutely trademark introversion visual style, I think it may put people off. Yeah, I think Darwinia itself was a bit of a hard sell. Uh, yeah. Even in single player, I mean, it, it's you have a bunch of stick figures running around this 
1980s version of what an inside a computer looks like, <laughs> and you're trying to move them to safety by killing centipedes, uh, and polygonal spiders. Um, so, I mean, I love how it looks, and it's a very unique look, um, but I think it is actually a hard sell. And I think as cheap as it looks, I'm going to say cheap, cheap in quotation marks, uh, as it looks, um, it's probably took a lot of time and effort and money to actually develop uh, to get it to look. Retro is not cheap. Well, I don't think that Introversion is big enough to have spent a lot of money. Well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not talking, anything. I'm not talking. But, but it's definitely yourself. intentional and it is definitely yes. it is definitely well worked. I mean, it is something that has been carefully thought out and tweaked. And I will say that on the, the Xbox Live Arcade version of this is gorgeous. It is. I it's mean, it is. It game. really does feel. Um, I mean, I was when I was talking to Chris about this around the launch of it, uh, you know, he sort of said, consider this kind of like the director's cut where we went back and tweaked all the things we wanted to tweak. Um, and, and he said, and hopefully not like a George Lucas director's cut, like hopefully a director's <laughs> cut you actually want to play. And I will say it does have that feel. I mean, you know, you've got bloom effects on the trees and I mean, it really does feel gorgeous and beautiful and and surprisingly lush for a mm-hmm. game where the primary enemy is literally a two-dimensional you know triangle running around on the ground well i mean that's one of the things that i really enjoy about the art style in darwinia is that i mean going back to what troy was saying it, it's not that they spent a lot of money on it but there's so much more to it than like you know, a, a wireframe mesh that these characters are running around on. There's this wonderfully, like, impressionistic quality uh, yes. to the landscape, where how does a tree look in Darwinia? Well, it, it you know, you can tell it's a tree, it suggests a tree, but it also has this otherworldly, um, you know, aura about it. And everything in the game world has that. Um, you know, the way, like, light shines down from the black sky above. Mm-hmm. It's It's all really... I, I guess it, it's all really kind of beautiful um, yeah. in a strange the, way. It's a mesmerizing series to look at. To me, now we're going to get really just stupid picky here. The thing that's yeah. always bugged me a little bit about the art design of Darwinia in particular is the least interesting, least sympathetic piece of art in the game is the Darwinian himself. Yeah. Right, the little, the little two-dimensional dude you're supposed to actually be caring about and saving yeah. and harvesting stoles to create more of in the incubators and all that stuff. They are just like, I, they are the most boring. I, it's like every time I like have some mission where I have to go collect 50 of these guys and stick them under a tree, I just want to smash them all. <laughs> well, I, th- I think that's intentional though, because these are things you can't really control. I mean, these are things you don't direct. I know, but I find myself uh, so... emotionally hating them. <laughs> no, because thought... they're so stupid. I mean, they can't even path around a rock. You know? No, you have to set up, you know, your officers to guide them, little fl- little workers like flagging them in certain directions uh, along these narrow isthmuses. Otherwise, they will get stuck. Uh, but we're talking a lot about the style of the game. And do you think one of uh, the issues for introversion um, is that if you don't get into the style, uh, you're not going to appreciate the game itself because there's actually quite a bit of actual solid gameplay uh, in Darwinia. This is not just a retro-looking RTS. It is, in fact, quite a sophisticated strategy game um, in many ways. Well, let me challenge you on that. Why, what, do, what about it do you think is sophisticated? I think it. it, it I think it, 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 its purity is sophisticated. I think um, because it is so small and uh, focused on so little, uh, that it does so much with those elements. The fact that you do have to, there, there, there is research, and you have to choose what you research. And it's never quite clear how long it's going to take you to research something. So it's about setting your priorities for what you need now. Uh, it's about um, choosing your right path. And you could say some of these are, are puzzle maps, and you can only approach them in Wait, certain areas. Yeah, like, certainly are, in yeah. a single-player game, in they the single become pl- very much puzzle games towards the end. Right. And even th- so, I mean, that can be a problem, but it's also a way about 
it, it, it teaches in many ways setting priorities. Even if they are puzzle maps, these aren't easy type puzzles where you know where you need to go. There's a lot of trial and error there. And it's good trial and error because you learn what works and what doesn't. So I find, you know, by the end of the single player campaign, uh, that I'm not treating them as this puzzle so much as, okay, this is what I've learned going this far. I can do this much with these guys. Um, so I think there's actually quite a bit of sophisticated learning going on and, and even teaching going on in what how you're supposed to go about making do with what you've got. Um, I, or so I, think than any other I think that's fair, and I think that as a single-player campaign, and, and I'm sort of just assuming that yeah. the Darwinia Plus campaign, uh, which I've only put in, I, I'm, I'm basically at the end of the first giant map area, which is called Containment, which people yeah. either love or hate. Um, hate. That I'm <laughs> I'm assuming that the campaign will follow the same yeah. path basically as the previous game that yes. they haven't done anything radical with it. No. Um and I will agree. I think it's a great single player campaign experience in that sense that you really feel like you're progressing. You feel like you're learning the game and the strategies and the puzzles as your units are developing sort of hand in yeah. hand and that's a really great feeling when that's clicking. Um as a multiplayer game in Multiwinia, it really felt quite chaotic mm. to me and not it didn't sort of have that sort of zen-like progression where you sort of felt at one with the game, which is when it's at its best. Right. Um, and and Multiwinia, I felt, was a little bit... To me, it felt, honestly, it felt a little bit like um, jumping in the multiplayer in Brutal Legend, which was just sort of like, oh, I had this great, interesting single-player experience, and then here's this crazy, chaotic multiplayer thing that eh, doesn't have all that much interest or much to do with this fun single-player thing I just did. I just blew your mind. By, you by did. No, I mean, that's, but, I mean, this is <laughs> so. In, in many ways, it is it is the inverse of uh, many traditional RTSs. Right. The multiplayer. Right. The single game, player is just a, a a stepping stone to the multiplayer. Right. Which which is kind of an interesting. So once again, it's a very retro way of thinking about design. But what if that's intentional? I mean, they put out Multiwinia, hoping people would actually play it. Um. <laughs> One would hope. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not like, you know, they didn't think about how this would work as a multiplayer game. Uh, right. Do you think there's something about the game itself? I mean, you say it's chaotic, uh, that it's, you know, this rush for whatever, and there's really no feeling of progression beyond a populist-type land grab. Now, don't get me wrong, populist, one of the great multiplayer games uh, of all time. Um, is there something about the design that just does not work in multiplayer, that doesn't translate? Um, I don't know. I mean, to some extent, maybe I never felt in control enough, right? I mean, so, some of some of my it may just be my own ham handedness playing Darwinia to start with is that um, it, it quite often I always I felt behind the control curve because you really do need to take control directly of units in order to get them to do what you want. It's not right. like there's a great AI that's going to take care of your unit if you give it a set of standing orders. Right. Um that that once you put that into the the multiplayer mode, I, I always felt a little bit behind the curve. And then I, you know, somebody was always getting the goodies that dropped from the sky that I wasn't getting, and it just it never quite. So how much of me. this is you sucking? I, it could be entirely me sucking. Well, hang on. I mean, I you know I, I enjoyed Multiwinia, but I had a sort of similar experience in that I enjoyed the you know. The action would begin very quickly. There, you know, lots of chaos, lots of excitement. But I also have to say, I never really reached that point where I felt um, I was developing interesting strategies and being rewarded for you know my wise employment of them. It always sort of remained this, um, you know, rush for the center, and then occasionally when goodies would drop down from the sky, you'd race after those and try to get what was inside them. Um, but it, it always felt a little too arbitrary to succeed as a strategy game um, was, you know, an issue I, I might have had with it. Had I tried to play it for, you know, had, had it been a big multiplayer community, um, and had I tried to make a hobby out of it, I'm not sure mm -hmm. I would have the fond memories I do. Um, my limited exposure, that, you know, that pony's trick didn't have time to get old. <laughs> that pony's trick. So cute. It's a great turn of phrase. Um, so, I mean, one of the interesting things about, I mean, you mentioned, Julian, how Darwinia changed uh, over its evolution, the number of versions of it. And one thing 
from the very first build, as I recall, and it's not in the 360, and I think they took it out somewhere in the PC, is mouse gestures. You had to draw... Julian, you are there, right? Yeah, I'm here. I'm okay. here. I didn't hear you breathing. You had to actually draw your orders. You had to use your mouse and draw a symbol to create a squad unit. Very black and white. Right. And we all know right. how much Rob loved the whole black and white gesture thing. Um, why did they take that? I thought that was kind of cool. Oh, God, I hated it. Oh, really? Yeah, I thought yeah. that was kind of cool. I loved it. I mean, I will say that I feel like this game plays beautifully on the console. Yes, it does. Right. I mean, hitting bumpers to go back and forth between units, hitting my D-pad to make a new unit. That just it's like boom, boom, boom. It's yep. like hotkey central, right? It's like if it's like every RTS where you bothered to get the hotkeys right, you know. So every RTS Tom plays. Right. Exactly, because he's hotkey master. Can we can we compare and contrast this to uh, what I believe is the single best diplomacy multiplayer game ever made, which is also a Crystal A game? Sure. That would be DEFCON. Ah, DEFCON, your favorite game. Oh, my God, do I love this game. So, uh, because I think it's worth pointing out, like, DEFCON, compared to Darwinia, which to me always feels like a single-player game, Mm -hmm. DEFCON was clearly designed from the ground up as a multiplayer game, right? Single-player consists of going up against fairly stupid AI, right? Who cares? Um and that, you know, again, that's sort of more... No, you know, you know, you, if you get, you know, three or four AIs against you, you're going to get hosed. Well, yeah. Okay, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Uh, but then again, everybody gets hosed because it's yep. nuclear war. Um, but but we went through over at GWJ a huge phase of playing five and six player DEF CON every single night. And we played different modes. We played everything on fast forward. Um we would play really slow. We would play standard. And, and I, you know, again, it has this minimalist quality. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. the art, the art style is, is similar in the sense that it's extremely minimal. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that the art design and the sound design of the game probably to me top five games of all time of any kind in terms of reinforcing the theme. Certainly the sound design as the game progresses, the way the music changes, the sound effects. I mean, this is a game that is unrelentingly depressing all the way through to the point where you start realizing how many people you've killed. Um, And yet there's nothing on it but that war game screen, just a Mm -hmm. global map and very abstract marks of units. I mean, it's more abstract than a game of risk, right? It doesn't even have countries written on it most of the places. So. You know, with all of that simplicity, it, it brings this incredible emotional quality at the same time. So art design aside, as a multiplayer game, to me, it is it is the most pure diplomacy based game since Diplomacy, the board game, because the and I think it comes down to one mechanic. It comes down to the speed mechanic, mm-hmm. which is in DEFCON. The speed at which the game progresses and the game marches inexorably toward nuclear war, there's never any doubt about that, um, the speed is based on a vote. And basically, whoever wants to go slowest wins. So if one person is going uh, at the slowest possible speed and everybody else is on fast forward, it goes at the slowest possible speed. And at that speed, it is glacial. I mean, I can't imagine how long a game takes if it's just... You know, if if everybody plays at the slowest possible speed, but I'm guessing it's many hours. Um, and and at that speed, all you do is sit there and negotiate diplomacy relationships with your 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 co-conspirators. Yeah. And then you know, as soon as everybody votes to kick the thing up, you can finish the game in five minutes if everybody pushes it to fast forward. And that to me, that's just a, a brilliant mechanic. I don't know why every single game doesn't have that mechanic. Well, it's not just that it gives you time to negotiate. And the thing about things moving so slowly and watching the time tick and I'm never quite knowing when the speed's going to kick back up again, because you voted for a fast speed and you're waiting for it to kick up and you don't know when that's going to happen, is panic starts to set in. Uh, you, and this is a game that does not reward panic, but it also does not reward waiting. Uh, so it's a, it gets all of that tension of, in fact, nuclear war. The idea that if I don't fire these missiles, I will lose them. Uh, but firing first, but firing is, first is a death choice is a, too. Right. So you got to make sure or have a sense that, well, maybe he's going to go after the other guy. 
Uh, maybe he's not targeting me. Maybe I can sneak some shots in. So you get you get cloudy, muddy thinking uh, because the stakes are so high, and you never know where those damn submarines are. <laughs> you can have just a couple of submarines sitting and waiting somewhere. And I've played multiplayer games counting how big the fleets are. Am I missing something? Uh, where are the rest of them? And always freaking out a bit. Um, and I think the time mechanic kicks into that again it, because, like you say, destruction is inevitable. You just have to be the least destroyed. Um, if you wait too long, you'll lose it all. Uh, if you move too soon, you'll lose it all. It's about waiting for that right moment. Uh, and diplomacy can only get you so far because there's only one winner. I mean, you well, can say, yeah, right. I would there, win is, your... there is only one winner, and so ultimately, yep. ultimately, the game has to be a backstab. And yep. that's, to me, why it's so freaking brilliant because... Because to be to be first or second and be unallied is almost impossible. If you're unless you're just playing with pubbers and nobody's going to negotiate with anybody. But if you're playing with five or six friends, I mean four or five friends, then you will not get to be first or second without being in an alliance with somebody. For a while, and how you how you play those alliances off each other yeah. is just to me it it it, it captures completely that sense of sitting around on a Saturday afternoon with the diplomacy board open and like pulling people over to the side and striking a little side deal and then going over and talking to another guy and striking a little side deal, right? And deciding who's going to get to divide up Africa. I mean, these are classic, classic, you know, strategic decisions. And, you know, diplomacy is one of those things that I think is lacking in so many games. I mean, there's, we, we, we had a whole show on it and, yeah. and all of the mechanics we talked about really, are kind of thin on the ground. Well, part of the problem is that diplomacy, true diplomacy, in the way you're describing it, really only works uh, with people you can negotiate with. Absolutely. You, you can't Absolutely. have... I mean, you talk about diplomatic systems in games, and largely it's because, well, we have to have diplomatic systems in strategy games, and you're dealing with AI most of the time. You're not going to be playing... Well, some people do, but I haven't played a game with eight people of Europa Universalis 3. As much fun as that would be, uh, you have to do something else with a diplomatic system there. Uh, but DEFCON, I mean, you, in the single-player game has no diplomacy at all. It's just you sit and you wait for the AI to fire its missiles, and you fire yours. Um, right. So there's no... I mean, so to even to say that uh, DEFCON has a diplomatic system is a bit... No, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. It, it, has, I mean, it doesn't. It, what, it has, what it has is... is it provides a, a setting for great multiplayer diplomacy. Right. I mean, it does have, I mean, the the diplomacy setting that it has is a really good way of establishing alliances and yeah. having one-on-one -on -one chat within the game. I yeah. mean, it's as simple as that. Right. Um, but yeah, DEFCON's my favorite of their games, too. And I think, once again, it's this whole child of the 80s thing. I mean, I think the whole war games thing is a bit over generous i think in fact that is was their marketing uh to plug into those 80s memories since the game has really nothing to do with war games just barely looks like it um but it's really speaks to not just the fear of nuclear war not just the inevitable uh, cost of it uh but those giant stupid looking geo uh diode light maps Right. See things moving along. And maybe we were talking about the aesthetic again. I wonder how much um, of the aesthetic is so integral to DEFCON's success. Because you could have, you could play that same game and have it look 10 times better, but it would not be a better game. Well, what do you mean by better? I mean, you could have like, you could have like the maps from Ruse and have like giant swoop in, swoop out, you know, three dimensional graphics with perfectly little rendered, rendered Triton submarines and all that yeah. stuff. And, and to me, that would completely destroy the feel of the game, right? I think part of, part of the, part of the reason this game is so great is that you were given such beautiful levels of abstraction mm -hmm. right the fact that the fact that you know cities and populations are rendered in just sort of how big a bubble is on a chart i yeah, mean um, it, i mean that, even calling it abstraction is a bit much because it's not really abstraction this is all the information you actually need well right? hang on though i mean i think the 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 aesthetic is sort of informed by the subject matter, right? Yeah. I mean, nuclear war isn't isn't a subject that lends itself to the to a detailed, um, 
you know, or representative approach to uh, the map or how, how or the units you're using to fight it. You're you're always dealing with you de- you're dealing more with concepts and mm-hmm. everything's at you know arm's length mentally, and the aesthetic reflects that. Um, right, but it also but the aesthetic not only reflects that it comments on it. I mean, now I'm getting all go ahead go go new games journalism crap, but the 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 fact the way it renders it and the fact that you know the color palette shifts over the course of the game and the mm-hmm. soundtrack shifts over the course of the game and you start hearing like people coughing in the background as the fallout first fallout lands i mean that's the most that's actually the most obvious and probably the least artful piece of the sound design is the inclusion of you know people coughing as the fallout right. comes down um and, and and that that actually is just sort of the the exception to the rule, most of the art design and the sound design choices are so subtle that you don't really pick up on them until you've played the game a hundred times. Mm-hmm. And you realize that when you finish a game of DEFCON, you know, it, it's the first time I played a game of DEFCON and I won, I had this amazingly bizarre, bittersweet, like, oh, I just won because I killed how many billion people. And I, it really made me stop and think for a minute, which for a game which could be played with crayons is pretty incredible. See, it didn't make me think. Maybe it's because I'm a bad person. But that's because you're a bad person. We've established I, this. Yeah, we have? Which episode was that? The Troy is a bad person episode. In which my soul was proven to not exist. Now, I, I mean, people talk about how this game touches them, and I accept that. People are touched by different things. Um, and I'm a kid who was, you know, up at night terrified of, you know, nuclear war, uh, growing up. Uh, even though I lived in, you know, back of the woods, New Brunswick, and no one was going to bomb back of the woods, New Brunswick. We were probably one of the most safe place on earth. Uh, but you know, you see it on the news and you see the day after and you're freaking out. Uh, but the game never touched me in that, uh, in that spot. Um, I never really, because I never really got the sense that I wasn't playing uh, a game. It doesn't speak to me as a commentary on nuclear war. It speaks to me as a game about nuclear war. Um, do, do you want to play a game? Yeah, I want to play blow up the global thermonuclear war, and I just did, and I won, well, and I kicked your butt at it. Um, yeah. I never had any problem making that adjustment, and I, am, am I broken, or... No, it's not that I had a problem. It's not that I I didn't stop playing. Well, well, no, but I'm I'm not saying you did, but I'm saying but but you said that the game touched you and you stopped and you thought and I never stopped and I thought and thought. And that is when Troy Goodfellow. Oh yeah, I I I stop and think in games. I stop and think. um, Trying to think, the last game where I stop and I mean, there's something that I will not do in games. I mean, I I I will I will not play the Nazis uh, generally unless I have to for a review. I will not play the Nazis. Really. I just die for playing Hearts of Iron. I play Hearts of Iron for a review, and then I'll play the Nazis because you got to see how the Germans play out. But just playing myself never plays the Nazis. Just can't. Mm. I have that thing, so it's not like I'm a son of a soul. But but this game just didn't it it didn't touch me like it has taught touched so many other people. And I think uh, I wonder if it's cause I'm, I'm missing a cue or something, or is it just that I'm so inured to the idea that you know. And you can actually because you can actually win a nuclear war in most games. You can't in uh, Balance of Power, and you can't in Defcon. You can win, but it's a bad win. I mean, well, Civilization. I can win a nuclear war because I'm the only one with nukes. Well, yeah, but, but that's also because Civ uses fake nu- nukes. Um, but well, I, but I don't know. Wait, I mean, well, let's be clear. I mean, there is nuclear war at the end of every game of Defcon, and there is yeah. a winner. So yes, you do win. But it's a bad win. It's a messy win. Well, all all wins are bad wins, right? I don't know. I, th- I think the Canadian Olympic team will disagree with that. <laughs> oh, drop dead. <laughs> Sidney Crosby. Well played, sir. Well played. Well, hang on. Like, just I had a different reaction, I guess, because for me, when when I play DefCon, I'm, you know, I appreciate the the sort of bleak, um, you know, end of all things aesthetic going on in that game. Um, but I, I have to be honest, like, there is an awful lot of glee um, that, that 
ha- that I experienced during that game. Uh, you know, ask me how I feel when you know an ICBM penetrates the uh, defense shield and hits a massive population. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I see that, that you know, Moscow, my way to the game. million people dead. Yeah, you do. Feel, yeah, you just you, 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 you just said you were a crybaby. No, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it is this mixture of, of of joy and horror, right, Julian? Where you've yeah, but the horror is sort of this undercurrent, right? Yeah. It's this it's the sense that uh, you know how many billions of people died to make my fun, right? It's sort of the antithesis of the 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 scrolling credits at the end of a game of Left for Dead, where it tells you how many zombies you killed, right? Right. In this case, you're saying, you know, oh, you know, you won because you killed X billion people. Right? Well, I think one other thing, too, is that with um, DEFCON, because of the way the game unfolds, when you hit DEFCON 1 and – or is it DEFCON 5? I can't remember which way it goes. Um, when you hit the last stage and the, and the nukes begin to fly – um, things start happening very quickly, and you get totally absorbed in the task at hand, right? You stop thinking about any sort of context, and mm-hmm. you're just watching the missile trails and seeing who's, sta- who's attacking who, looking for opportunities. And then as the, you know, later on, as the last shots are being exchanged and the last cities are being extinguished, and you click over to the, um, you know, the population overland the map. And what was once this like glowing map right, of all the colors of the different you know, alignments... Um, bright because of their populations their populations before the war when you turn that on toward the end of the game to see what's left to hit and the entire map has gone dark right you know and it's the first time you've really had time to notice something like this because Mm. until then you've just been you know ordering up strikes and deploying units and watching your back but this is the first time now where the pace is let off enough the game isn't over but it's just let up enough to let you see what the hell just happened in the last five minutes and while you were busy with other stuff, the world ended. Right. And that's re- that's that's really that's really powerful. I don't know if it, like it, it, to me that that is affecting. That's yeah. that's an impressive moment. And so, and just as a and, and and you know, let's back off the emotional context for a minute. Just as a pure strategy game, yeah. You know, it is it has that classic set of what makes a good multiplayer game, which is that it's a couple of very simple units, a couple of very mm-hmm. simple tools, some really basic rules, and let people go at it, right? I mean, it's it's the same reason why Risk survives to this day. And it's got some really, I mean, what I love are how the decisions are so tense, and you can launch your bombers uh, at, what, DEFCON, Two or three, they can't launch the nuclear weapons till DEFCON one, so you might want to get them in the air, right? Uh, soon, but not so close that the fighters can see them coming. So right. it's uh, there's a lot of, of of estimating your time and how long it will take them to get there, and what's your range and which bases right. you want to get first. And it's really it's full of well, these and, nice and little and tight and tactical I- decisions. And in a five or six player game, you're trying to balance that out against well. What fronts can I leave undefended? Yep. Right, because one of the how many bombers the, can I afford to lose at this moment? Right, and can I put all of my ICBMs on this side of the map and worry about just taking out Russia because I really feel confident in my South American strategy and I can get my subs over there later? Yeah, you know, I mean, that, that, that's to me is the brilliance of that game is that the, you're making these trade offs that have very human components. Like, well, okay, I know, I know that Troy is playing South America, and I struck an alliance with him early, so I don't have to worry about him until the mid game. So I'll do all of my early build over here to defend against Europe. Right? Those kinds of balance of power plays where you're really taking the human element into consideration right. is something I think is very rare in video games, frankly. So I want to go talk a bit about Introversion's uh, business success because I'm getting the sense, and I think um, I'm not sure who gave it to, might have been you, Julian, that they've been having some trouble. Well, they've had they've had some quite obvious trouble. I mean, it's they've had huge delays in getting games out. Um, they had you know a giant spat over who had the rights to what over uh, Uplink. So I mean, they 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 have had troubled times throughout their development history, missing deadlines, having publisher problems, etc. So it's it's sort of a bit of a miracle that they're still 
around. I really want to talk about their next game. Can we can we jump over to Subversion for a minute? Uh, yeah. If you know something about it, because I know very li- all I know is the screenshots and the video. I think it was a video of it, right? Well, they did a couple weeks ago uh, at BAFTA. They did a, a demo of sort of like actual gameplay, right? Um, where, where Crystal A actually showed, okay, this is what a mission is going to look like in this game, and essentially what the mission is is terrorism, which to me makes me all excited because this is back to the whole DefCon thing of taking something that is very much hot button, very hard to wrestle with, and just going straight at it under a layer of abstraction, which makes people think it's okay, right? I mean, that to me is why I'm excited about this game. So Subversion, the first things we saw from Subversion years ago was this procedural city builder that Crystal A had built, where you know you push a button and a city generates on the fly, which was very cool, but what the hell do you do with it? Well, it turns out what he's doing is building buildings, and then you have agents who, whether, whether you want to think of them as good guys or bad guys, who knows, um, who have to infiltrate these buildings, facilities, whatever, and essentially blow things up, right? That's what he demoed at BAFTA was uh, sending a bunch of guys into a building, clearing out, either killing or otherwise scaring off the indigenous population, blowing through a bunch of doors and sending bombs in the server room to blow it up, right? So clearly, I mean, you, you put that in name, you put that in the same bucket with the title, and it's. I think we have a sense of what this game is going to be about. Um, you know, there's definitely going to be something in it that has to do with hacking. We haven't quite seen that yet. Right. So there's definitely a, there's definitely a sort of cyber angle to this as well. Right. Um, but, but it's all done very much in this introversion wireframe abstracted system. My, my hope, right? My, my, and, and this is really fanboy hope more than anything I know, uh, is that they're going to do some really interesting stuff there, right? I mean, with, with the whole issue of, what does it mean to be a terrorist? I mean, I think that would be really – I can't imagine anybody else I'd rather tackle it than these guys with mm-hmm. their sense of irony, their sense of abstraction, and, and their willingness to just tackle these things head on. That's what we know. That's what we know. Well, it sounds interesting. I haven't seen the BAFTA thing. You'll have to give me a link uh, that I can put at the bottom of the podcast uh, so other people <laughs> – can find it. You always find that very funny, but it's true. There are links. You don't read the comments, but other people do. I uh, find it funny when Bruce says it for the most part because he's always coming up with random stuff like, well, as Kierkegaard said, blah, 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 blah. There'll be a link to that at the bottom of the cast. Yes. Or he'll be like, this was something that was published in, you know, CGM, you know, in like 90, 94, 95. And there'll be a link to that at the bottom of the podcast. Good luck hey. finding it. <laughs> Sometimes I do. That's the beauty of it. Beauty of the internet. Nothing ever vanishes completely forever. Um, a subversion does sound interesting. The fact that if it is this total terrorism thing, uh, well, it, it could be terrorism. And you're right, the whole subversion title. Um, wow, that's kind of heady stuff. Yeah. Well, I, I just think it'll be interesting. But anyway, if you want to go back to talking about no, that, uh, that, 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 that's a mess. troubled past, we can sure, do that. Well, so let's go back to diversion. <laughs> no, I think this is very cool. I'll be wrapping up in a few minutes anyway. Um, so you did? Did you speak to uh, Chris about it or about introversion? I mean, no, I mean about, uh, subversion. about subversion. Yeah. yeah, although they're they're really still playing it very close to the vest. Although honestly, they they don't these these you know Chris Chris and Mark Morris uh, they're not guys that I think are particularly devious or uh, or slick. So when they say, well, we don't really have much more to tell you about Subversion at the moment, I genuinely get the sense it's because they're still figuring it out, not because there's a giant PR plan in place, right? I mean, right. I, I genuinely think they've figured out some core of the gameplay. They figured out how it's going to look. They figured out how the environments are going to interact. And they have this nut of an idea. And I think Chris has probably locked himself in a small room with his computer and is going to figure the rest out over the next year and we'll get to play it, you know, in 2012 or something like that. <laughs> I mean, who knows with these guys, right? Yeah. Because they have had a lot of delays, as you said. They have a lot of issues, problems with getting games out when they're supposed well, to. Well, uh, and they flat run out of money a couple of times. Well, I mean, in 2006, yeah. they literally spent the last of their money and were like, well, I hope DEF CON sells because uh, that's what's funding the next game. Any idea how well DEFCON did? Uh, well, DEF Con they're did making really a, well. Yeah, I think I think no. it was probably. 
if you want if you want to look up uh, if, you, if you want to like see what happened with introversion i think i think chris did a series of really um you know really uh personal blog entries about what introversion's been through in the last year or so mm-hmm. um and defcon left them flush and i think the way he he the way he put it was maybe left them also a little overconfident um because they figured that multiwinia was going to be you know Kind of a rainmaker for them after the way Defcon was yeah. received. Yeah. yeah, and he told this really kind of painful story um, about the Multiwinia release, where they had rigged up a program. Uh, if they had a release party, they'd rigged up a program uh, that would play some sort of sound effect and let them know every time someone bought uh, Multiwinia uh, the, on release night. So they're all there having this party, and they're supposed to be hearing, I don't know, like, say it's cash register sound, right? So they're like, supposed to be... Get, yeah. yeah, they're supposed to be seeing, like, a counter ticking up, and it's not. It's it's <laughs> not at all. And so it's the, it's their release party, and they're starting to get a sick feeling this is off on the wrong foot. Um, and they'd maybe overextended themselves a little bit after DEFCON, and Multiwinia really left them in some bad shape. So... That's a shame. Yeah, but I mean, they're, they're really. I mean, he's a good writer, and they're they're interesting uh, blog entries to read. I mean, if you if you want to get an idea of what it's like to be an independent strategy dev, um, living paycheck to paycheck, <laughs> go go read these pieces because uh, uh, they're they're really inten- they're really intense. Yep. Uh, there'll be a link to those as well as soon as uh, Rob points them to me. Uh, <laughs> the at the end of the podcast. Uh, uh, Troy will find them. Yeah, I'll try to find them. I've got so much to do tonight. But I would I want to get this podcast up tonight because the podcast up a little bit late. And I do apologize uh, to the listeners who expect this every Tuesday. Uh, and here we are recording it on Wednesday night. And we'll try to get it up either early Thursday morning or later tonight. But because you have all been such great, patient listeners, I do have a prize uh, for you. Uh, the good people at Neocore have given me a key for King Arthur, a Steam key for King Arthur, the role-playing war game. So if you want to enter a draw for King Arthur, the role-playing war game, uh, you have to have a Steam account, of course, to activate it, please email me. Uh, just put in the subject heading King Arthur drawing and your name will be entered. I will draw, uh, I will have the draw for the week of the podcast you record the week of the 15th. So have your name to me by March 14th, the evening of March 14th, uh, Eastern Standard Time in the United States. And your name will be entered into a draw for King Arthur the role playing war game. This is a uh, thank you for everyone being so patient and keeping uh, the downloads going. Uh, so what's next for introversion? We have subversion, and then we have to wait. Well, subversion, I think we have 2011, right? That's not even coming out this year. Not even this year. I don't believe they think it's coming out this year. I think the last I saw was 2011. Wait, what was it uh, in the Gamers with Jobs interview? They said they were working on something for uh, PSN. Duh, you've totally stumped me. I, I want to say they said they were going to do something with Sony, but... <laughs> Julian doesn't listen to his own podcast either. I no, Especially not if I'm the one that did the interviews. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Uh, well, that will be interesting. Uh, to look at, there will be a link to the Gamers with Jobs interview with Chris DeLay at the bottom of the show, so please check the Flash of Steel page. Uh, so you can find that their podcasts are much better organized uh, than this one. Uh, next week, we'll be talking StarCraft, our experiences with StarCraft Beta uh, and their wonderful little matchmaking system and some of the neat stuff uh, they have for uh, that Blizzard has for us. So that's next week, StarCraft. Uh, Julian and Rob, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And good night, everyone.